global challenges are mounting, and we seem incapable of coming together to respond. The Sustainable Hour. For a green, clean, sustainable Geelong. The Sustainable Hour. Welcome to the Sustainable Hour. We're broadcasting from the land of the Wathaurong people. We pay tribute to the elders, past, present, and those that earn that great honour in the future. We're broadcasting from stolen land, land that was never ceded, land that always was and always will be First Nations land. They've nurtured their land and their communities for millennia before their land was stolen. And in that ancient wisdom, there's so much for us to learn as we face up to the climate crisis. We can't have any form of climate justice until we have justice for First Nations Australians. Good morning, Australia. It's 5 a.m. and Australia's elected representatives are coming back to Parliament House today. It's day 12 for me. I've lost nearly seven and a half kilograms, but I'm here and I'm waiting for all of them. I'm waiting for Albo. I'm waiting for Peter Dutton. I'm waiting for every single member of parliament and senator in that building to explain why isn't Australia doing enough for a safe future for our kids and our country. I'll be here in my swag every day this week. I've gone too far now to give up. Gregory Andrews is on hunger strike, climate hunger strike in front of the Australian Parliament. To go on hunger strike, think about it. It's it's like the last resort when you really feel you're not being hurt. A hunger strike is obviously a, an act of desperation, but really, we are in desperate times. The warning signs are everywhere. Half of the Northern Territory has burnt, and the fire season hasn't even started. They say that up to 80% of the Northern Territory is going to burn when we reach the end of this summer. Already, 33 million hectares have burnt, and people are losing their homes. If not to fire, then to water or to strong winds. Extreme weather events and floodwaters are causing devastation everywhere. We hear from the Australian Institute of Health and Welfare that more people than ever are hospitalized because of extreme weather events. The global average temperatures are being shattered. This year, 2023, has already been declared the hottest in at least 125,000 years. And we now hear from the scientists that the average global temperature for October has climbed above those two degrees Celsius for the first time. That is that line that the scientists have warned us about for so long. We do not want to cross the two degrees line. That's where the runaway, the tipping points and everything sets in. Just for one month still. But it shows, not surprisingly, where the graphs are going. We are going up, up and up. It's getting much worse and it's getting much worse. 
very quickly. And meanwhile, governments, including our Australian government, are opening up more fossil fuel projects and subsidizing the fossil fuel industry with billions of dollars. Gregory Andrews is right in his call. He's not a madman. It's the politicians in the parliament who are insane. We should be scared, we should be angry. And to me, that's exactly what Gregory Andrews in front of the parliament is expressing. Hunger. Hunger is a powerful form of activism. I would say it's the grown-ups version of what we saw Greta Thunberg do up in Sweden when she started her school strike for climate. And all the many activists and organizations here in Australia that spend all their time on fighting for climate action. I say we need to come together and unite behind Gregory Andrews' hunger strike and his petition in particular. But that's of course just my opinion. The fact is that we release something like 120 million tons of greenhouse gases here in Victoria alone every year. And as we are 6 million people, you can divide 120 million tons with 6 million people. That means that each of us are responsible for an average of 20 tons of greenhouse gas emissions per person. 20 tons, that's 20,000 kilos of greenhouse gases every year. Which makes us here in Victoria one of the most polluting states in a country which is one of the most polluting, greenhouse gas polluting countries in the world. If we want to put an end to the climate chaos, let's put an end to fossil fuels and get behind Gregory Andrews. But it's not just about fossil fuels in reality, because for instance, food production is responsible for something like 25-26% of global emissions. So we need to talk about also how we produce our food. That's a quarter of our emissions. And that's what we'll do in the Sustainable Out today. I've put out a long blog post about these topics here that I'm talking about, and I'd love it if more people would go and you know engage in this debate. Put a comment there, either on my blog post or on Gregory Andrews' blog, and consider whether you would like to sign his petition. Enough for me. We need to know what's been happening around the world. Colin Market, OAM, what have you been scanning in your global outlook? Yeah, thank you, Mick. And our world roundup for this week is dominated by a new report that was tabled at the United Nations in New York. It's called the 2023 Production Gap Report. And it was produced by four climate think tanks in partnership with the UN Environment Programme. The report's scientists used the country's own data. They analysed the plans and projections published by governments from 19 of the 20 largest fossil fuel producing nations. The other, the 20th one, South Africa, didn't release their data. And the report found that the world's top fossil fuel producing nations are all planning to increase their output of oil, gas and coal considerably more than what their own and the world's climate targets would allow. The findings revealed a widening gap between the emissions cutting pledges that these nations had made and their continued policy to promote mining and drilling within their borders. Of course, Australia is one of those super polluters and we too have plans to increase our fossil fuel yield to above what would be allowed if we were to keep to our promises. 
Australia, like the vast majority of countries, has adopted zero net zero pledges to slash its climate emissions. Yet we, in common with all of the biggest producers, have plans and projections that would extract more than twice the level of fossil fuels by 2030 that would be consistent with limiting warming to 1.5 degrees Celsius. And it's nearly 70% more than would be consistent with a 2 degrees Celsius of warming. This is according to Inga Anderson, the Executive Director of UN Environment Programme, who said in a statement that accompanied the report that government's plans to expand fossil fuel production are undermining the energy transition needed to achieve net zero emissions. This throws humanity's future into question. And UN Secretary General Antonio Guterres called the report's findings a startling indictment of runaway climate carelessness. So of those 19 leading fossil fuel producing countries, the US, Brazil and Saudi Arabia all have forecast uh, significant increases in domestic oil production, while Russia, India and Indonesia all project substantial increases in their coal productions. The report found that Australia, which sits squarely in the middle of the 19 biggest polluters, Our governments are planning to increase their national production of coal and gas by 0.2% and 0.7% in 2030 compared to 2021 levels. We have pledged to cut them. We're actually going to increase them. The UNEP report is a damning indictment of the Albanese government and its LNP predecessors said Professor John Quiggan of the University of Queensland. We are contributing almost as much to the destruction of the global environment as Saudi Arabia, and more than any other country except for China, Russia and the USA. And I'll emphasise again that the data wasn't independently sourced. They simply used each government's own projected figures. Now, undoubtedly, The report's release has been carefully timed for it to be central to the discussion in the COP28 meetings at the end of this month. It has a clearly written conclusion, suggesting that all the named governments should aim for a near total phase out of coal production and use by 2040 and cut oil and gas production to at least three quarters by 2050 compared to 2020 levels. Now I've got two snippets of information and action from the federal government this week. The first concerns Prime Minister Anthony Albanese's visit to Tuvalu, where he reached an agreement with the island nation's government to take residents affected by rising sea levels into the Australian community. This was seen as significant in curtailing the influence of China in the South Pacific. It should be noted that all South Pacific nations have been pleading with Australia to reduce its fossil fuel impact for years as a means to reduce the climate change impact on their homes. The other federal news came when the Greens warned that fossil fuel companies are expanding their influence into government scientific organisations. 
They cited that BP had collaborated with the CSIRO to give corporate approval to scientific studies that the government science organization is undertaking. Now, this had uh, CSIRO scientists themselves concerned and contacting the Greens, and we will keep you informed on how this is going, whether the fossil fuels does have an impact on our scientists. And I have an uplifting good news story to finish this bulletin, and it comes from the most surprising source. It's Viva Energy in Geelong, which outlined its future strategy last week, uh, and it reportedly contained no mention of floating gas hubs or increased carbon emissions. Fever's Geelong refinery pumps out more than a million tonnes of carbon emissions each year. That's out of the 120 million that Victoria does, so it's um, a little under 10%. It's listed among Australia's top 215 polluters, who must reduce their emissions by 5% annually under the current government's climate change initiatives. And it's apparently doing this by embracing the future. The company bought all 700 of the Coles Express service stations in May of this year. They paid $300 million for them. And it's in the process of buying 205 outlets from the Adelaide-based on-the-run convenience stores. This will make it among the biggest roadside retailers in the nation. And the plan is to update all of these facilities to become places where EV drivers can link their cars for a fast charge and then go and have a coffee and or a shop while that's happening. Um, they will still sell petrol and diesel fuels, but presumably in lower amounts and over time they'll be phased out. And the fuels that they will be selling are going to be low, as low emission as they can make, including biofuel for diesel cars. Again, Given the fossil fuel company's uh, preponderance for saying one thing and doing another, we will have to keep a clear eye on these. Uh, but it sounds highly promising for the future. And it's a bit of good news to close my world roundup for the week. Listen to our sustainable hour for the future. Our guests today, uh, Matt and Bridget Kelly, from Low Footprint Lamb, that's the name of their farm. So welcome, Bridget and Matt. Thanks for coming on. Tell us about how you're achieving that, how you're achieving your low footprint status on that farm. Yeah, thanks for having us. Um, yeah, so there's a number of ways of, of um, I guess, reducing or um, ha having a positive impact on the way you're farming. Um, and I, you know, we see it as quite a privilege to be on the land and and to be farming and have the opportunity to sort of to, to do all that. Um, so we take that responsibility pretty seriously. Um, our firstly, I guess, our, our, type, our style of sheep is a shedding sheep so and and we've bred them and genetically selected them over the years to um, require very low inputs so they're, they're quite worm resistant they're foot rot resistant um, so there's there's low chemical inputs um, there's low um, labor inputs and they, they function very well and are quite productive um, you know so that yeah 
you can reduce things um, from a carbon point of view. But if you're reducing output as well, well, then you're really not achieving much. So these animals are at high levels of production um, with low levels of input. So that's, I guess, our first concept sort of around that, the sheep part of it. But then also within our, um, I guess, land ownership, we have the opportunity um, with a, with, by owning soils, you can, you can, you can plant trees, uh, which benefit the sheep from a shelter point of view and shade, but also um, lock up carbon um, and, and change your um, own environment with on, you know, within the farm. Um, we also have the ability to, um, get high productive soils, um, which if you have more carbon in your soil, the soil is functions a lot better. Um, and some of that can involve some drainage. So you, by increasing your production um, per hectare of grass, um, um, you, you can achieve or well, you get more production um, and you have a higher organic levels in the soils, which is locking up or, or holding carbon. It's not, I guess it's not permanently locked up, but it's held there in the soil um, as a percentage of the soil and is is benefiting your business, but it's also benefiting the climate. We also encourage legumes as much as we can um, to, um, so rather than using um, nitrogen fertilisers, which are um, produced from fossil fuels, um, we let clover do that for, you know, just naturally. It, it draws nitrogen from the atmosphere, uh, fixes that into the soil, which helps feed itself, but also feed grasses and that that, that are living in that same patch with it. So, um, and, you know, which increases the digestibility of our pastures, which is increases the growth rates of our lands. So, yeah, there are lots of different ways of, of tackling it. Um, yeah, but it's still still sort of challenging, I guess. One big challenge, isn't it, whether the consumers out in the supermarkets and the shops can see that a product is, you know, carbon neutral or that it is a low footprint. Yeah, that is a challenge. Um, so certainly the carbon neutral thing is very hard and a lot of the maths at the moment are sort of vary so that, you know, one one set of circumstances will tell you that you're very near your carbon neutral and the next one will tell you that you're not. So um, until they get all that sorted out, I think saying claiming that you're carbon neutral is, is a big statement to make. You know, we're running a lot of animals that are producing methane and we're producing a lot of product. Um, so to, to assume you can do that at zero uh, emissions is, is is fairly fairly you know you're probably off in la la land a bit that's a disappointment for me i've been so happy in the last weeks when i go to my local supermarket there is one you know there's all this choice of eggs and i buy typically 12 eggs a week or something like that and now there's one type from macro that is actually called carbon neutral from freedom loving hens who forage and roam on an Aussie farm with solar panels. So is that uh, greenwashing? Because I was really happy and I've been buying only these kinds of eggs from here on and thinking, oh my God, if everyone would just understand what the word carbon neutral means, then let's all buy those eggs. So I don't know much about that business and I don't know about chickens. They, um, chickens don't have a rumen, um, so they don't um, um, consume large volumes of low-quality feed, which they then digest in their rumen and, and, and process, um, and that's where the methane is produced in, in a ruminant. So chickens don't have that problem, um, but they certainly, you know, they're consuming high-quality food and and um, and producing a product, so that they would be emitting some sort of gases. Um, yeah, so I can't really comment on the chicken business. Nice to What's been happening 
because so many solar farms are being done and that's covering a lot of agricultural space, hopefully poorer quality. One of the things they're doing is running free-range chooks underneath them because they can't have cattle because they just push the solar things over. So we, I would be asking that question. On my suspicion is it's coming from those solar farm places. There are some solar farms where they're using sheep underneath. Um, obviously, they have to seal up their cabling and all that sort of stuff so the sheep aren't nibbling on things. But, yeah, um, yeah they do run sheep under solar panels. But, yeah, if, if you're doing something like that, well, then it's I guess you can call it carbon zero lamb or chicken, but really the chickens or the lambs aren't carbon neutral. It's the solar panels that are doing all the hard work. Mm. Yeah, well, as Mick said, we, we're not sure with how much greenwash is in there, but I'm yeah. just proffering that up because they are being used as but they I thought they were labeling them free range, but maybe not. Yeah, look, my I, I too am a wary with when as soon as you get the mention there saying that it comes from a farm with solar panels on the roof and you think to yourself, yeah, they're sort of scraping the bottom of the barrel there when looking for credentials. But Matt, if I can come back to your initial bit set, when you called your sheep shedding sheep. Do you mean that they stay in sheds all the time? Or no. do you mean that they're out on the pasture and, and run from the sheds? I mean, yeah. you have to you have to bear in mind that we don't know your technical terms. No, everybody thinks the same thing. They think that they're, they're kept in oh. sheds. It's yeah, go on then. Tell us what it is, please. Yeah, so the sheep shed their wool. So they just naturally shed their wool, just like your dog sheds its hair and, and your cat sheds its hair. And, and I guess... Originally, that's how sheep were. If they if they just kept their wool their whole life um, before humans were were farming them, they would have got themselves into a fair bit of trouble. So over the thousands of years, we've genetically modified them to hold their wool, so that we could harvest their wool and um, utilize that wool. But wool is worth less and less at the moment. Yeah. Um, so it's actually from a lamb production system point of view, it is 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 more beneficial to have the sheep just deal with that themselves. Um, like a cow loses its hair, um, these sheep just lose their wool in the spring and essentially have like a summer coat, and then then they grow wool again in the autumn to keep themselves warm in the winter. Um, now, well, yes. That yep. brings in two questions from me, Matt. I'm sorry about this, but um, right. how do you harvest sheep with um, the wool from sheep when it's shedding it all the time in spring? And the other one is, are your um, principal incomes from wool or from meat okay so our only income is from the meat the wool um, sheds naturally just in the paddock so the sheep rub it on the trees they rub it on a fence they just it just falls off them in the in the grass and it just you know it, it's a high quality fiber i guess that's just down there in the organic matter and and um, it's made essentially of protein so the worms quite enjoy eating it and it just slowly works its way back into the um soil carbon how many how many head of sheep have you got? Um, we run about um, fifteen hundred breeding ewes and produce about seventeen hundred lambs a year. They fear for their fear for the own lives, lives of their children, frightened for the future of life on earth. No government, no major political party has ever significantly addressed the issue. They haven't been listening to us, the climate activists. Now. I'm not asking for anyone to break the law. There are so many lawful ways to get involved. Raise your voice 
post a poster, sign a petition, Take a banner, go on a march, lobby your local MP. However, for me, myself, when significant and obvious danger. So, but I've got to raise my voice. If you're an activist that's already made a decision that yes, you're going to break the law, so long as no one is hurt and there's no lasting environmental damage, then you'll have my support. And personally, I think I've reached a point where I now consider it the ethically responsible thing to do. That was a short clip from the controversial documentary that Chris Packham, a British TV host, put out on Channel 4 recently. It's called It's Time to Break the Law. And on Friday this week, as we talked about in the Sustainable Hour last week, it's time to get out on the streets. The school children are going to march and strike for climate. of November, I am taking a sick day to strike for a sick planet and to shift the power. We are sick of the Labour government's continued use of their power to fuel a climate breakdown. Beyond empty promises, the Labour government is handing billions of dollars of public money to the fossil fuel industry, having disastrous impacts on communities all across the country. Communities like mine in Western Sydney were having to face unbearable temperatures and unprecedented weather events. We are sick of their climate inaction, so we're taking to the streets this November 17th. Download your climate doctor's certificate, a sick note by a different kind of doctor, so you can join us at the upcoming National Climate Strike. Matt and Bridget, I'm wondering if you can take us back to the start, like when you decided to go down this pathway. Was there something that someone or something that influenced you to do that or how did that all come about and and when did you start seeing results? Yeah, so the start for us was that we we actually didn't have a farm. We, we lived in town in, in um, Western Victoria in, in Hamilton and um, although I, I was a passionate sheep farmer I guess uh, and I worked as a livestock contractor sort of in the area and, and I worked at the local um, research station agricultural research station um, but I quickly realized that 
as a laborer, the only money you're ever going to learn earn is the money you work per hour for. So the only way to to go better than that was to have a business. And um, the business opportunity that came around was to graze sheep in um, forestry blocks. So we started um, running sheep in the blue gums um, that are around us and south of us. And um, the, it was very quickly evident that sheep that carried wool were a, a bit of a management headache in that scenario and that they were quite susceptible to, to fly strike and lice. Um, it was hard to get clean musters. So even if you did shear or crutch, you'd always miss a percentage of them. Um, they they also needed to be quite robust from a parasite point of view because uh, there was a lots of worm challenge and that sort of stuff in, in the trees because there was a lot of shading. So we sort of there developed... There wasn't any shearing infrastructure either. There was, there was no facilities. So all the facilities have been pulled apart and moved or sold um, so they could just turn a, what was a farm into a forest. Um, so there was no internal fencing. There was There was just nothing. So, so it was, yeah, it was very difficult to manage sheep that had high requirements and, and high inputs from humans. So we developed some sheep that could function in that environment. Um, and then off the back of that, after sort of six or seven years of doing that, we were able to well, pay off our house in town and then get enough respect from the bank that they would lend us some money to buy a small farm. And then we brought some some of their sheep home where we started performance recording them and um, and then, you know, selling rams and stuff. And then, yeah, and then we've been able to grow our business um, out of the forest because the, as the che- trees have matured, there's less and less grass in there. So it was becoming less and less viable. Also, once they'd harvested those forests, the paddocks were very, um, uh, well, they're, they're a bit of a mess. Like, And the forestry guys don't mind it. Like, they're happy to have stumps and logs and stuff lying around everywhere um, because that's just rotting down, turning back into into the, the you know the, the nature of things in there. But it's incredibly hard when you're trying to muster sheep um, on a four wheel motorbike with a couple of dogs, and the place is an absolute mess. Yeah. So how did you get over that, mate? So once they did the first round of harvest, so so initially those those uh, that country was was a tidy, clean farm with no lumps and bumps. Um, and then they ripped it all up, planted their forest. Um, and then so I could zoom down the rows, you know, at reasonable speeds on a four wheel motorbike with my dogs and round up the sheep. But then once they've harvested it and it's all messy in there, I, I made the choice of not to go back in. So we basically pulled out our sheep. So as the blocks that we had um, were harvested, that was the end for us. So that business shrunk. So that was a sort of, a, you know, a very, like about a 10 year sort of opportunity. Um, and then as that shrunk, um, we, we were lucky enough to have a farm and we just sort of focused our attention on that. Yes, Tony. The farm that you got, how was it managed before then in terms of carbon in the soil, et cetera? Yeah, the previous um, owner of the farm uh, had done a pretty nice job. He'd, he'd used, um, you know, um, sustainable, I guess, as, as much as he could. Um, and, um, you know, they had some tree plantations on the place and that sort of stuff. So so it wasn't bad, um, although we did buy another block further up the road. We bought another 100 acres up the road from us that, that had not one tree on it, and it had been leased out for sort of 15 years or more, um, and, it you know, it was pretty rough. Um, just had a lot of tussocks and fairly low productive, um, low fertility, um, which I guess we, we spent a lot of money on to start with to, where we put drains in and move the water and... Um, Put plantations wherever we could put them, and and um, yeah, we've done, we've done a lot of work up there to get that up to speed. And how long before you saw the improvement in 
in that second farm? Um, sort of nearly instantly, really. Once you like um, country that holds a bit of water in the winter time, um, and it, it doesn't have to hold a lot, you know, just fifty mil and that sort of stuff. Once you drain that, you you all instantly sort of get three or four more months of growth. Um, you know, you put lime on it and you level it and put summer crops and winter crops into it, and and yeah, you very quickly change its production levels. Um, yeah, and then and then we put long um, put deep rooted perennials in there that are now growing yeah very well and producing or well, carrying a lot of sheep per hectare up there now. Are you able to trade the carbon that you're sequestering? No, because I guess the first aim of any business, I think, should be to um, get as near to zero as you possibly can. So for us to sell our carbon to somebody else and just put ourselves, our own business or our own industry, I guess, in a in a poorer position, I don't know that that's, I, I know that's just all smoke and mirrors to me. It's just, yeah, like there's no advantage. Sure. Um yeah, I know, and I don't see the long-term benefits of that. The other challenge within it too is there's there's still a lot of disagreement, I guess, or not not complete yeah. complete agreement on on how the maths is done. So so you could sign up to an agreement today, um, and um, then five years later find that, that that they've proven that agreement to be wrong, and then I don't know who do I have to give the money back. <laughs> um, so I certainly don't want to put myself in that scenario, and I think. I think I want to be a responsible land producer first. You know, if I'm then in a position where I've proven myself to be that and have excess carbon and and foresee that I will have excess carbon for a, a certain amount of time, well then, then maybe I would I'd consider sort of profiting off that. But but yep. first things first, I need to do the right thing right here. Yeah. Are you able to offer a premium on on the the meat that comes off your land because of the way it's farmed? Well, the challenge there is that you have to have to individualise yourself and do a lot of marketing, um, which is very tricky. The um, you know the current um, sheep production scenario or a sheep slaughter scenario, um, you know, it, it's big and it's and it's quick and it's efficient. Um, so to break out of that to try and label yourself um, and then provide to a certain market is is incredibly challenging um, and time consuming. So I'm just sort of playing the big game, I guess. I'm just just doing the best I can at what I can do, and um, then yeah, sell my animals on from there. Mm. You can always put on the label that you've got solar panels on your roof. There you go. <laughs> yeah. hey, Matt, do you consider yourself, or you and Bridget, uh, as environmentalists or just sensible producers? Um, well, sensible producers first, but. But I, I guess as farmers, we, we live in the environment. We're outdoors a lot, um, you know, and I certainly enjoy the environment. Like we're, we're that's the, the beauty of trees is that you, you you plant trees and it changes the the vista nearly instantly. Um, you have all of a sudden got little birds and and stuff hanging around. You like so yeah, it's doing multiple benefits to your world, I guess, um, rather than just carbon. Like obviously, there's the carbon bit in it as well, but. But yeah, there's there's lots of benefits from that. So I guess in in a way, I'm an environmentalist. But I don't, you know, I, I still I'm very comfortable cutting down a tree if a tree needs to be cut down, um, and and happy to harvest and utilize that sort of product. So I'm not, yeah, I don't know what the definition of environmentalist. Look, I, I would say that um, we're really proud of our ethical and sustainability goals within our business, and. 
We certainly, from a family perspective, we've got three girls, a couple in their 20s and a teenager who are very concerned about the lack of action on climate change. Um, and so they really feel like our generation is is letting them down and, and failing to protect their future. Um, so we get quite a bit of, there's quite a, some pretty good conversations around the dinner table around those sorts of things. Um, and I think that that for all of us, we need to see ourselves as as protectors of the environment because it's just so important that we act wherever we can. And I think we just can't rely on others. We need we need to be doing whatever we can personally, professionally, within our business, even in our hospital at the moment. I'm I'm a member of our sustainability committee, and we've put in. <laughs> solar panels, but we're doing lots of other things as well. And um, it's just great to see all of that, uh, that we as a healthcare provider can be perhaps being leading by example in our community as well, in our rural community. Have you got um, data that will compare you to a less environmentally friendly farm that doesn't use the the techniques that you're using currently. I, I guess I came up with the term low footprint lamb um, when I was working at the DPI, and they did some pretty major comparisons between lamb production and beef production. And mm -hmm. sheep came out in front simply because of their reproductive rate is so much better. So yeah, like sheep can have two babies each year, sort of thing, um, and a cow can't do that. Um, so. So, the, yeah, so the kilos of meat produced per hectare can be considerably higher, which reduces the methane output per kilo of meat produced. So that was where I sort of came up with the idea. Um, but we now, we, we benchmark um, ourselves in the, there's a um, farm monitor group project that we're a part of, um, and um, that sort of does a lot of farms within our region. It also does in northern Victoria and eastern Victoria. So we're benchmarked against them um, and we, we're, we're well below average, but we're still, I guess there's still room to be better. And look, I would think, uh, from my knowledge of uh, landholders in Australia, everybody's keeping their eye on everybody else to see whether or not there are practices that they can adopt. Have you found that other farms in the area are using, uh, are moving in your direction? Um, certainly from a sheep point of view, there are a lot of farmers moving in our direction. Um, and that is because labour costs have gone up considerably over the last sort of five years. Um, stronger wools are worth less and less every year. There's, there seems to be a lower, a reduced market for them. So people are trying to reduce their business costs um, and maintain production. Um, so that's working in our favour from a business point of view very well. Like we're, So we're selling a lot of rams and, and, and ewes to people that, that are wanting to change their breed of sheep um so that's yeah that that is helping our business a lot um, there's also a lot of people that i think are interested in moving to more sustainable practices as well so there it's certainly there's a there's a huge subset of farmers i think that are really wanting to do more would you say yeah. that matt yes yeah i agree completely yeah because and the strange part about it is is um doing more for the environment is sort of doing doing less with the sheep so having the animals that can you know can resist the worms and 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 don't have any of the chemical needs um don't have any of the labor needs um are reducing your costs but they're and they're helping your your environment sort of all, all at the same time 
many scientists and uh, environmentalists in Australia have been urging the federal government to cut its subsidy for fossil fuel industries. Much of that goes to farmers, goes to the land for your diesel uh, rebates. How would you feel if you were to have your diesel rebates slashed by 50%, say? Would that affect? Would that adversely affect your profits? Oh, not very much at all. So, as, as um, so uh, I'm just trying to think of it through the whole supply chain thing. Um, that wouldn't have a direct impact on us because we don't use a lot of diesel. Um, so we just, you know, I've got a Ute, I've got a tractor. You know, we we don't plow up a lot of country. We don't we don't do a lot of that sort of stuff. So that would have a big impact on. Um, uh, cropping and it'd have a big impact on the hay industry. I guess we buy a lot of grain and we do consume a fair bit of hay. So that would put the price of those commodities up. Um, but yeah, uh, it would have an impact on agriculture more broadly. Um, but yeah, I, I, I still don't know as, a, as an industry, I don't understand why we're, well, why we're um, subsidizing fossil fuels. Mm. Not me. Mind you, they haven't come up with an electric tractor yet, have they? Or have they? Not that I know of. An um, electric four-wheel drive musterer. Um, we're actually thinking that our next purchase would be something like that, and I don't know whether they've got one yet, but we're sort of keeping our ear to the ground to see if they've got some um, electric, um, you know, I guess like a like a golf buggy with <laughs> um, big lumpy tyres is what we need. Um, something yeah, a little bit more robust than a golf buggy that can scoot around the paddocks. I'm sure there would be, they would be, if they're not with us at the moment, they won't be too far away. I'm yeah, hoping. I'm hoping so. Yeah. There's a lot of uh, negativity around the returns from farming at the moment. And, you know, farmers, the average age is getting older and more and more farmers are advising their kids not to follow in their, you know, to, to keep, continue farming. So where's, what's your position on that? Um, yeah, they've been saying that to me since I was about 17 and, um, and I'm a bit surprised by it. I think probably and possibly what's more than anything going on behind that is that the, the age of land owners is getting older, but that doesn't factor that they've got a son and a grandson, you know, working on or granddaughter working on the farm with them. Um, so grandpa might still own the dirt, but his son and his, and his son or daughter are farming it. But there's certainly a lot, there's way more positivity and way more passion in the younger people entering agriculture today than there was when I was um, pre-20 years old. So like in the late 80s and early 90s, it was it was nearly seen as child abuse to leave the farm to the kids, um, which just seems like such a bizarre concept. But if you look at the last 10 to 15 years, agriculture has been incredibly profitable. And I think a lot of kids have realised the the that in itself that that it's a very very good business um it's got there's a lot of freedoms in within the lifestyle although you are quite attached to it as in it's it's fairly demanding of you um but yeah i think there's more positive positivity now than there probably was 20 years ago are your girls interested in joining you or taking over when you get old um i don't know about taking over they're, they're very helpful um they do a bit of work on the farm um and that sort of stuff, and it's great to have their involvement, but they're, they're, I think their passions lie elsewhere, yeah. So, But we'll see as they grow up and mature and, you know, 
particularly, and I see it within a group like a lot of my friends over the years that have left the farm as younger people and gone off to the city and worked. But once they're married and got kids of their own, they actually want to come back to the farm. They want to come back to the country. Um, so who knows what will happen. Yeah. They have done a lot of tree planting in the last few years. Yeah, it's yeah. interesting that you, you talk about the the attraction that that soon as you put in a few trees that the wildlife appears yep and and the the psychological benefits of those rather than having bit for you and the, and the sheep well and it is it's sort of yeah uh, um you know i think back to when i was managing places and and uh, particularly some of my neighbors at dunkeld and they had they were putting plantations down all their fences and all their internal fences and and every paddock you went into was like a whole new room. You sort of was like you pop through a gateway and just go, well, wow, there's a whole new paddock. Um, and 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 it just it does create a very different environment and and much more pleasurable place to be. I would imagine too that the your girls, the environmentalists, if you if you count them that way, would be happy with planting trees because of their effect on swallowing up CO2 and uh, delivering oxygen. And your sheep would like the trees too for the shade that they provide. So it works. It's a win-win, isn't it? It's very much so a win-win, yeah. Mm. And, Matt, with with the sheep and the fact that they shed their wool, factoring in that there's not a whole lot of money in wool at the moment, do you see that, that breed as, as um, being more popular? Yeah, so it's it's changing dramatically at the moment. There's that um, particularly dedicated lamb producing um, people that are that are the the wool is actually a cost to their business. So um, that the the sale of their wool does not cover the cost of shearing and crutching um, and jetting their sheep for fly strike and that sort of stuff. So it's it's a, a, a financial cost. It's also a mental and physical cost, and it's very very time consuming. Um, so, so a lot of those people are, are looking for options and, and somewhere else to go to to relieve that sort of stress and pressure. We're based in Geelong, which was built on the wool industry. Yes, but, uh, it just shows you how life changes, doesn't it? The meat is now worth money, and the wool isn't. When in its its early days of Geelong, uh, the meat was thrown away or boiled up for candles and for the tallow. Because it was only the wool that was uh, that was worth anything. It just shows how the world alters. Yes, and yeah. look, even in the nineties, um, you know, I was managing a farm, and the wool was the wool was the main game, and and essentially the the sale of older sheep, and that was that was just a byproduct of the wool job, um, yeah. you know, because they were just very very low value. Bridget, what's it like coming home from hospital where you're working? to the farm for you personally? I I, um, I enjoy being at home. I don't get to be home as much as I would like. I'm about to have three months of long service leave, so that's all about to change. But, um, look, we we quite enjoy, we're near the Grampians, so we, we get out and about in the Grampians quite a lot and just being able to see how much the farm has changed in the last few years in terms of the tree plantations and uh, just bringing nature back in, um, I just, I really enjoy being at home and I think it's, we just, we're creating a, a pretty special place. Terrific. The current livestock markets through the option sale yards is dropped 
dramatically. Is that the case in Victoria? Yeah, yeah, it's the case everywhere, yeah. And how's that affecting your scale of operation? Um, the scale's staying the same. Um, we're still pushing our sheep. Um, in some ways, it will bring more interest to our type of sheep because um, when your profits go down, the, you know, you really start, need to look at your cost structure. Um, so people will be reduce, uh, trying to reduce their costs wherever they can. Um, so that will bring more people sort of towards our style of sheep. Um, but, yeah, I, I don't think the downturn's sort of going to be for very long. So I think most people are sort of fairly optimistic. They're just going to take this one on the chin and, and um, you know, bat up again next year. Yeah, it was a bit of overreaction to the El Nino effect to some extent. And we people had stopped, had restocked after COVID and so there was probably a bit of excess floating around anyway. But the other question is, um, we haven't mentioned the name of the breed of the okay. sheep. So we call the breeder sheep a nudie. Um, and it's because, yeah, yeah, they get their gear off um, when they need to. <laughs> I would be marketing that bit. Forget about the <laughs> environmental one. <laughs> that would get people's attention, like Mick with the little um, little badge on, the, on his egg cartons. Yeah, there you go. In yeah. some ways it's helpful because... Um, as you said earlier, people often think that if they're shedding sheep, they, they spend their life in a shed, but the nudie might assist with actually explaining what what a shedding sheep actually does. Mm. Where do they originate from? So um, there's a number of breeds that, that have that capability, um, and the most common one is the Dorper, um, but it comes out of, um, of Africa and it's a Dorset crossed with a, um, a black-headed Persian. And most of the sheep with a fair bit of African genetics really struggle in the south, um, and that's because of our higher rainfall, a lot of green grass and you know, worms and, and feet problems. Um, so we've got most of our shedding from um, the Wilshire horn, which originates from um, from England, um, and then they've bred it over here, called it a wilty pole. Um, so they've just bred the horns off the Wilshire horn. Um, so that's where we've got most of our shedding genetics from, and then we've just mixed that with a maternal composite breed um, that is sort of created in the south here um, that is, or, and in New Zealand, I guess, uh, was where a lot of the genetics have come from. Um, and they're a much more robust sheep in the southern conditions, yeah. You've basically got a unique sheep that you bred yourself and that's why you can sell your rams. That's that's correct, yeah. Yeah. Oh, that's wonderful. That's a different stream of in income for you. Yes, yeah, and, and more profitable. More profitable than the meat. Yes, much more. So seed stock production, you know, so selling rams is more profitable than selling weather lambs, yeah. That can't be sustainable because sooner or later you're going to saturate the market. Um, there's, there's a massive market. Like there's, there's absolutely hundreds and hundreds of thousands of rams sold a year. Um, if we could get a slice of you know, 100 to 200 rams a year, that would be awesome. Oh, brilliant. I'll just hark back to an interview we did, uh, I don't know, several months ago with a West Australian farmer, and you reminded me that when we were talking to him, somehow or other we got onto carbon sequestration and the selling of that, and paraphrasing him, he said the same thing as you have, Matt. You know, you can't, farmers cannot actually afford to sell it because they will need it sometime in the future. 
these carbon credits are totally overcomplicated by the bureaucrats for a start. Yeah. And you will need them yourselves sometime in the future. Yeah. And, and look, that's the absolute way I view it. And the other part of that too is that, you know, as I said earlier, I haven't got a, a niche for my lamb product that's just me. So I am selling my lamb as a bulk you know, into the industry, which is being used within Australia and, and exported. So if if I get myself to carbon neutral, well, then I sort of nearly owe it to my land producing mates that, that aren't quite there. If we've got to take the whole industry. The whole lamb industry has got to be carbon neutral so that everyone views that as, as a safe place to buy meat. So that, yeah, so I can't afford to be selling it to someone that's going to yeah, build cars or do something different with it um, because I need it within my own industry. So it's myself first, my industry second, um, you know, and, yeah, to, to promote my own product, really. Yeah. yeah. You, don't, you don't want to be selling it off to Qantas or anything silly like that. No. Yeah. They can sort their own problems out. <laughs> I, I don't need to be. <laughs> they can't even sort their own problems out on the minor scale. There you go. It's so refreshing to hear that, Matt. That attitude that it's 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 not just you; it's bringing other people, the industry along as well. Yeah, and that lack of selfishness is uh, in in all areas is is what needs to happen. Yeah, yeah. When when you can't go on your own, like or going on your own is an incredibly hard road to go down. Um, in an industry that's you know this big, um, and and got so much momentum and and positive momentum within itself, you, you're better off just getting on that that train and riding it and doing your best gig you can. I think the other thing that I would say is that um, what we've found is we see a lot of farmers around us that just work all hours. Like I think our model is really simple too and and it is it does have farmer wellbeing at its core as well. I think you'd agree with that, Matt. That, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's a simple system that actually works and covers off a whole range of things, including wellbeing. In essence, what you've done really is refine the business down by uh, reducing the amount of work that you actually have to put into the thing. You don't have to shear the sheep. You don't have to crush them. You don't have to do so many different steps that have become normal in sheep production. That's right. And and I guess a, a um, you know, sheep, sheep production system there's nearly two businesses in in one. There's one. There's the wool production, and then the meat production. Yep. We've just we've just we're just one business. We're just meat production. We yep. so we've chopped out. Um, so there's there's a lot of knowledge required to run two businesses. There's a lot of um, planning and and structural stuff to run two businesses. Um, whereas we've just we're just one business. We're just yep. meat production. Yeah. And that other business is is an expense. It's not. There's no revenue right. coming it's, from. It's a very it's a very unprofitable other business. Yeah. Um, for the type of wool that um, that lamb producing sheep have, yeah. And with that attitude that you've got, uh, and that if that's that spreads to other farmers, it's it's a a collaborative effort. It's you're not competing against that's someone. Right. That's right. Exactly. Yeah. yeah, and all benefiting from that. That's right. Yeah, it is such an unusual thing the collaboration element in that most businesses see them the others in their industry as competitors. And if they've got a, an advantage, then they tend to keep it to themselves because they don't want their competitors to do it, whereas you are the opposite. You're actually um, encouraging other farms to take your 
steps that you've taken and are selling them the rams to do it. It's a, it's a lovely little way around it, isn't it? It's when yeah. you think about the thing as a as a business um, system, a round round way system. Yeah, I like that. Terrific. Mm. That's all we could fit in the hour, folks. We need to uh, have a think, maybe over the summer holidays, about whether we should start up the new year with a different way of ending our program. Because as much as we do need to be the difference, I think more and more of our programs end with us saying, we need to do this together and we need to unite. We'll still be the difference. Yeah, we can unite around being the difference. Am I gonna die? Am I gonna live? Am I gonna sit on the edge of it? Am I gonna fall? Am I gonna fight? Am I gonna watch from the outside? Sometimes I wake from the deepest sleep Oh, and I feel tomorrow in me Like I don't wanna let the hand of yesterday hold me back But everything I see, everything I watch Makes me wanna hold my ears till it stops Makes me wanna run, makes me wanna hide Makes me wanna set this house alight Oh, but I remember my mother's voice Telling me that every day is a choice For where there's good, there's bad But my child, you always can be the difference Be the difference I know the world's gone mad It's true Be the difference Be the difference Cause I see a fighter Logged in When I was about eight years old I first heard about something called climate change Or global warming Apparently that was something humans had created by our way of living. I was told to turn off the lights to save energy and to recycle paper to save resources. I remember thinking that it was very strange that humans, who are an animal species among others, could be capable of changing the Earth's climate. Because if we were, and if it was really happening, we wouldn't be talking about anything else. As soon as you turn on the TV, everything would be about that. Headlines, radio, newspapers. You would never read or hear about anything else. As if there was a world war going on. But no one ever talked about it. If burning fossil fuels was so bad that it threatened our very existence, how could we just continue like before? Why were there no restrictions? Why wasn't it made illegal? 